Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Paula. So grateful that you're here. I have a very exciting conversation today with Meghna Majmudar. I will tell you a little bit more about her in a second. But before I do that, I want to make sure that you are signed up for the Cosmic Business Salon, which starts today. It's totally free. These are masterclass talks to give you tips on how to run a business that is ethical and equitable, spiritually aligned and financially successful so that you can bankroll the change you want to see in the world. So I'm really excited to share these talks with 11 plus experts so that you can really get into how to build a business based in your values. And Meghna is actually one of our first talks that will be out today. So you'll get to learn more about her in this conversation. And her talk is really centered around power and power fluency and understanding power structures and what to do in them, which we touch on a little bit in this interview, um, but it goes much deeper. So let me tell you a little bit about her. So she is a strategist and executive coach committed to helping those who haven't traditionally been in roles of power, i.e. first and onlys, which she talks about in this interview And she helps them navigate power dynamics and lead in an authentic way. She has over 20 years of experience coaching, facilitating, and building breakthrough strategies for change with executives at leading companies. You won't want to miss this conversation because we talk about things like self-doubt and imposter syndrome, and she gives her 30-second way to move past imposter syndrome and kind of the background of why she thinks this is not just a problem of our own minds. She talks a lot about being the permission and how do we create more equity in our systems and our teams? How do we understand power? What was her journey to working in equity and what is her big vision? It's pretty exciting stuff. And then of course, Magna and I are both projectors in human design and we talk a little bit about her astrology and and being projectors and what that means for us. Also about neuro-linguistic programming. So you won't want to miss this episode. So if you do still want to sign up for the Cosmic Business Salon, that that link will be in the show notes. Make sure you do do that because it's totally free. And if you decide to upgrade, you will be giving that donation. 100% of it will go to Soul Fire Farm, which supports Black and Indigenous farmers. So here, without further ado, is my interview with Meghna Majmudar. Hi, Meghna. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Paula. Great to see you or hear you. I know. It's so fun to see you. I mean, obviously people are going to be listening, but Meghna and I are friends. So it's nice to see my friend. So I'm curious if you would potentially start by talking about your journey to working in equity. Like what happened that made you realize that this was something important to focus on in your work? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been my life. I moved to the U.S. as a five-year-old child. I was an immigrant and there was always that outsiderness. And so growing up, I just took it as a matter of course. And then I went to a very well-known college uh, called Harvard. And I was just at that place. 
I was very thrown off. There are so many different rules. I don't know what's going on. And some of it doesn't seem that fair. But I didn't know how to name it, how to like put my finger on it. So that led me to studying abroad in Africa. And then after college, I went and lived in South Africa for about a year and a half doing a master's in public health. And that's really where I learned about equity and what it means of what it means to rewrite wrongs systemically. And so that kind of like sank in, that seed was planted. But then I came back after 9-11 and just was moving through the world. went to business school, worked in New York. And I think in the last few years after the 2016 election, I was just like, there is something really off (laughs) here. At that point, I got really serious about my coaching. I had been side hustling my coaching for a really long time. And I committed to working with first and onlys, the first from their family or community or only one like themselves in the room. And so this can be people of all genders, uh, races, you know, that sort of thing. But it's that internal experience of being the like very unique and not feeling access to power, and not feeling like things are fair. So in that work, in those conversations, it was just really clear that there's a lot to be done. And there's the interpersonal work, the like human work, the psychological work that comes through. But each of my clients, when they hit kind of a structural issue, like structural bias, systemic bias, systemic bias, systemic inequity. Each of those conversations were like such heartbreaks because that's when most people give up. And and so it's like, okay, the, the work is working because we've gotten to this point. And now we can get into the systems work. Right. I saw on your on your website, you wrote, I had to learn to play the game and change the game at the same time. And that seems like it's something that's unique for people of color, especially. I mean, hopefully some white people are getting into the game and trying to do it as well. But when you're in a position of privilege, often you don't feel motivated to change the system. Yeah, because the system has worked for you. Mm. And, And so a lot of the equity work, especially when you have more dominant group identities, when you have more privileges and advantages, is really sitting with your privileges and and thinking about, well, what are the biases that become implicit with my privilege of me as a very able-bodied person who's into weightlifting? (laughs) That's a huge privilege. I don't worry about getting on a plane or going to a new hotel or anything like that. So it's it's that of, you know, if you have tended to be on the outside, it's very clear. But then it's also where are my connections to power? What do I bring? What is that unique thing I bring? Because you could get into power and just recreate the old dynamics. And so how do you get into power and not recreate and not propagate the very negative ways of being? Yeah, tell us, how do you do that? (laughs) Well, for each person, it's different. But I think it starts with like understanding there's a lot right now in our world that's extractive. It just extracts. There's no give and take. It's just take. 
And so um, I, I believe when people are able to see that whole system, that whole game, and that's what I mean, then they can make decisions differently. They can choose differently if they want. And I think that is a much more enduring way to talk about power. Yeah. I mean, you, you refer to it as a game. It's a game. Is that, and that is something that you kind of learned through your experience at Harvard. Like there, there's something. A little bit. A little bit. I mean, like a game can come across as silly. It can also come across as where you learn something about yourself in a very low risk environment. Um, but my language around game is really influenced by James Carse's book, Finite and Infinite Games. It came out in the 1980s. And he makes a distinction between the finite game, which is the game of winning and losing, and the infinite game, the game you play for the joy of playing. And I think, uh, you know, I, I was telling you before about my 30-year project, which is to help people who have not traditionally been in positions of power or in power, who've been marginalized from power, to be in power in ways that are authentic and do not propagate these past structures and extractive qualities of power. I love that. And so that's my infinite game. So I can be in a conversation and a client can choose not to work with me. That's a loss in the finite game. I may not be winning in the finite game, but in my, but, you know, if I move out of that frame of winning and losing and into what is that bigger thing I'm serving? What's that bigger thing I'm playing for, for the joy of playing? Because when my clients call me and they tell me they are starting something new, they got a new job, they're making more money, they got a promotion, great. And I know they're going to be in those positions of power in very different ways. It's so interesting what you're saying, because it reminds me of, you know, you and I met at a, a spiritual retreat. And so the spiritual perspective of the microcosm and the macrocosm, you know, and, and so I'm wondering how spiritual thinking influences your, your work. How does it help you I'm, stay in that frame? I am Indian. <laughs> I yeah. grew up with... You know, just the smell of incense being a very common experience. You know, you've been to India. It's just part of the day to day. And so even though I, I live on the outside, what looks like a very secular life, um, there's always been a very strong commitment to something greater. Have you ever played the game where it's, it's like, there are nine dots on, like in a grid, uh, in a square, nine dots, and you have to connect all the dots without taking your pen off the page. Mm. I haven't done that, but it, it, I've seen it. Yeah, but the only way to do it is you have to move out of the nine dot grid and right. and kind of circle back. That's the only way to solve the puzzle. And so I think that's what spirituality gives me and my work. The connection to something greater allows me to move off of the grid and circle back and bring new intelligence and wisdom in, in the mm. conversations. So tell me, I know you talk about, we. I want to kind of return to this idea of power, because that's been a big piece of your work that we've been talking about a lot. And we talk about on the Cosmic Business Salon. So if people haven't joined that, they should definitely join. Um, 
So maybe tell us a little bit about how you started unpacking this. Like give us some of the background of like, how did you start to see those systems and start to make changes in the way you viewed them and then start to work within them? Yeah, there was the uncovering of, I was always drawn to very kind of powerful or status things. You know, I worked in consulting in New York. I got to work with leaders from places like Coca-Cola, GM, like, you know, Google, like I've worked with kind of the most powerful, quote unquote, organizations. And so there was always a proximity to power. There's something in that that I wanted to unravel, uncover, discover. What really started to shift things was when I was doing my coaching training and trained in neuro-linguistic programming, so NLP. And it was through my training, through NLP Marin, where I started to see, oh, there's this conversation about leadership out there, but it never talks about power. It never talks about systems of power. It kind of puts the onus on the individual to figure it out. And this is especially taxing on women and people of color and women of color because we grow up or we kind of engage with these systems thinking there's something wrong with us that we haven't figured it out. And so that's what I was just like, that's not true. There was this moment I remember in training where we were talking about how do we code external behavior internally? And I realized that this thing I had been calling imposter syndrome was really that when positive attention came from me, came to me from the outside, there was nothing inside that believed in me. So that positive affirmation just kind of went through my system. And I stayed not confident and I stayed insecure. And what I realized, I was like, oh, those stories, those beliefs, those in that internal landscape isn't, isn't oriented to receive and hold and build on its strength. And that started to shift things for me. Once I started to like, at first it, it felt a little awkward, you know, of when someone would compliment me. Internally, I would just say, yes, it's true. And just letting my system kind of hold that. Yes, it's true. I think imposter syndrome is something that people talk about a lot. I think, you know. Yeah, I have a 30 second fix. Do people want to hear it? (laughs) Should I share it? I think definitely. But basically, it's when you are putting yourself out there and you're worried that you're going to be found out that you actually can't do what you do. I mean, that's what they say it is. But I think you're right that there's, first of all, people of color probably experience this more so just because of the systems that are holding, you know, all of the power above them. And also women also experience, I think, more. Yeah. But yeah. Tell us your 30 second. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a run up into it. Um, I do not believe in that term. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it is a term that stops people from taking action. When imposter syndrome became a became a term that was used. It was coined in the 1970s uh, where, you know, they talked to all these women in the corporate world who were probably some of the first women in the corporate world who weren't in safe environments for themselves, who, you know, probably experienced a lot of discrimination and harassment. These women were very insecure 
about their quote unquote success. And, and so it was just like, they feel like an imposter because they are in an unsafe environment there. It's not safe for them to be in that environment. And thank God they were in those environments and pioneering. But, you know, back in the seventies, we weren't talking about bias and psychological safety in the workplace. We weren't talking about discrimination and harassment in the same way. And so we did not have the language to say we were actually working in an unfair system, a system where I am not <laughs> positioned to actually succeed. And it's yeah. despite all of this, I am succeeding. And I don't know what that is. Right. And so that, so that's the, that unpacks it. That, yeah. That's, that's the background run up. So here's the 30 second fix. So <laughs> imagine imposter syndrome. In my world, I look at it as a stop sign. Like, you know, when you're driving, you come to an intersection and there's a stop sign. And it's basically, that means stop, look in all directions, proceed with caution. Okay. But what happens is when we say, oh, I have imposter syndrome about X, we have hit the stop sign. We turn off the car, take out our keys, get out of the car, lock the door and walk home. And that's what basically imposter syndrome does in our head. And so the, the kind of fix is to like notice this is just a stop signal. I am moving into waters where I feel insecure, where I have to look in all directions and proceed with caution. And so that's what I would encourage everyone to do of like, okay, I am feeling insecure. I am feeling I am in, in a place that's new or I don't feel completely safe. And that's the moment to start to look for, do I have allies? Do I have assets? Do I have different access to power? How can I proceed with caution? I love that because I think so many people may feel this as doubt. They may just not know whether, you know, a lot of business owners, a lot of entrepreneurs are forging new paths and it may be something that nobody's ever done before, or it, it's not something that they recognize out in the world as like, quote unquote, normal. And so they can doubt even if they have really incredible skills, so many of my clients, especially have, you know, studied what they teach from every angle and have all these credentials and a deep practice and all these things. And yet they doubt because they don't see it already out there and they're creating it. Right. And so what you've just said is super helpful for those people who are like, let's not throw the keys out in the forest and like Walk abandon home. the car. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And let's and just look around for who our allies are and what systems we ha can put in place and what we need right now. What does our physical body need? Yeah. Because, That's what I always go to. Yeah. Because I look at the doubt and the insecurity as wisdom coming from some other perception or sense that you have. So one of the things that's going on, especially with first and onlys, um, and I have this conversation a lot with my clients who come from Asian backgrounds, especially, is we're raised in certain families with rules, with certain rules in our family. You don't talk back to authority. You don't do this, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And then you are in this like corporate Western world, you're in like the business world in the West, and you have to throw those rules of your family out the door. 
but those rules are what helped you get to where you are right now. And so there's a confusion about, well, this starts to look unrecognizable to where I come from. And this new world is scary. Such is your karma. You're one of the mm-hmm. first. You're one of the onlys. Yeah. Like you have the intelligence, the skills, the strength to figure it out. How do mm-hmm. we figure it out? So I, I want to ask you about neuro-linguistic programming sure. because I know it's a big part of your work. I've never had anyone on talking about it. So maybe you can just explain what it is and how it helps us as business leaders. Yeah, I won't have the best <laughs> description or explanation. It has a checkered past. NLP was a modality founded in the 1970s uh, out of Santa Cruz. So out of, you know, the people who brought us Est and Langmark and all of this, there was, I don't know what was going on in Santa Cruz in the 1970s, but there were a couple of folks, Bandler and Grinder, uh, who were taking a stand against, I think, the psychological movements of the time of people can be in therapy for years and years and nothing changes. And they found ways to use language and and kind of cure people, like create lots of change by looking at kind of their language, putting hypnotic language patterns and all of this. It was used in very kind of manipulative ways by kind of the early people who got into NLP. I I know Tony Robbins uses a lot of NLP in his work. And so, you know, there are a lot of like just more manipulative NLP practitioners out there. For me, I first experienced NLP through my first coaching training program in 2010 that I was taking in New York. And there, the uh, mentor advisor, he was very NLP based. But And it was just kind of my first experience of, what? (laughs) Like, just understanding internal structures of what are my beliefs? How can I use my words? And how can I learn about another person's world? And then so in 2017, I went and trained at NLP Marin. And why I chose them was uh, the founder there, Carl, Carl Bukite. He also trained with a phenomenal developmental psychologist. And it was a very kind of human-oriented way of how can we have the experience of life that we want? And that is the question of what's our desired state and what's our present state and how do we move to that? And so me as a coach, what I bring in when I'm in conversation with my clients is what is the world my client is living? They are giving me clues about their world based on their nonverbal communications in terms of where their eyes go when they answer questions and then the words they use. So I'm tracking those non nonverbal elements and also the verbal elements to, to look for what are the beliefs, what are the structures, what needs to move for my client to have the kind of outcomes they want. And so you've seen big change using this on yourself and with your clients. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of it is changing belief work, just Mm -hmm. putting new patterns of thinking in. One of the very interesting things um, I got to learn through NLP Marin was uh, the integration of uh, family systems into this work. And that's where I have found the most power come through for me is 
understanding kind of the ways in which we show love to our parents by being just like them. We are different people. And so how can we love our parents in a more appropriate way? So personally, an example is in relationships. I had, um, you know, a pretty significant breakup many years ago. And I realized that the pattern I had gotten into with my ex was very similar to patterns I had seen between my parents. And in the aftermath of the breakup, my mom was so uh, supportive of me, so understanding. I felt very connected to her. And then I had to step back and say, this is whack. I don't want to feel close to my mom because we are both kind of hurt in love in the same way. I want to find a more appropriate way to love my mom. And so uh, I, I think I've told you my mom is a phenomenal cook. So I just focus on how good her cooking is, all the things she has taught me, and how much I appreciate using them and how it's making my life better. So it's me calling her and talking to her about this new recipe I'm trying out, this thing, like this thing I learned from her. So she gets to hear I love you in a way that makes her feel good. Because if I just told my mom, I love you, I love you, I love you, she'd be like, cool, you're supposed to, you're my child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and so, so this is more like, I want to love in a more appropriate way. Yeah. And I think this is just kind of a fun fact for those who are listening. When I first met Megna, I realized that her her family owned a restaurant that literally was one block away from my college apartment. And so I have eaten your mom's food <laughs> many times. Yeah. So um, it's like such a special thing, you know, that we share. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I know you do a lot of work around money and success. That's another way we can be like showing love to our parents of, I will not be more successful than you. I will be just like you. And so breaking through that pattern of I can be just as or more successful doesn't mean I love you any less. And so what's that more appropriate way to show love of like, come, come take this trip with me, come visit. I think too, this is important that you're pointing this out because I think what we were talking about earlier with doubt, sometimes it manifests as doubt in what we're doing, but actually what's underneath that is a fear that we're going to be more successful than our parents or that we won't be lovable anymore or that we don't have what it takes or whatever. There could be a thousand stories underneath that that manifest in like, oh, I'm going to go get more credentials or I don't want to be visible today on my Instagram, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's that that kind of rules from where you came from of you don't talk about yourself. We have a value of humility and modesty. People learn a lot of negative beliefs around money from their families of origin. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot that has to be unpacked. And that's part of leadership, too. I know you're really a leadership coach, too. So like, stepping out of those rules that you have been indoctrinated with and making your own rules in some ways, but also making a really good path forward for those around you so that they feel properly led. Like, what is good leadership? I don't know. What do you have? What do you think about that? Uh, what is good leadership? Good leadership is rare. Don't see a lot of it out there. But my original coaching mentor, he had a really powerful definition, which I use today. 
a good leader creates a future that wouldn't already have happened. You know, because like our world is cyclical. We have up cycles, we have down cycles. It's easy to write an up cycle. That's where a lot of the media attention goes of folks writing up cycles. And, and then those of us who aren't on an up cycle start to feel really bad about ourselves and think we're doing something wrong. But it's asking, is this person creating something in the future that wouldn't already have happened? Are they bending the curve? in a certain way, because that's really hard work. You need to have followers, you need to have vision, you need to like be able to stomach a lot of like uncertainty. Yeah. So I mean, this leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you, which is what should we be keeping in mind when we're, you know, around equity, when we're thinking about putting together teams or building inclusive workspace? Like what are some of those things? Because I know you said this isn't a people problem. We don't need more people just just to make more people of color look like they're in the space. You know, representation matters. But I think you and I have talked about this going much deeper than that. Yeah. Equity right now in this world is about kind of correcting a broken system. And I'm not sure that that's the most useful game for folks. Equity could also be can you create different different narratives, different forms of success? So there's a way to do equity work that's about correcting current systems. That's hard work. It needs more than just one person. You need kind of a group that's doing this. Um, you know, I, I like to use the metaphor of acupuncture needles, of what acupuncture needles is our group kind of putting in place. So the energy will move in a different way moving forward. So there's that. But then there's the sort of what about creating systems that are outside of what we know? So, for example, the NAP Bishop, Trisha Hersey, and the NAP Ministry, and kind of the signal that is sending about rest as a really important activist stance, you know, and that's a different system. It's not in the old system. It's a completely new system that gives access to like being in the world in a different way. And so more than equity, it's what's the world we want to live in? Because that's what I got when I lived in South Africa is for the first time, I lived there in a very specific moment where the, the kind of promise of rainbow nation felt very alive of seeing so many different voices and perspectives in the way forward, seeing how many different people had to fight to be post-apartheid and then how they were moving forward. And so I don't want to get into a political conversation about what has happened there, but, but it's that kind of play the game, change the game, play the game, choose the game you want to be playing. I'm going to be teaching a course in April And that's one of the activities of what is the game you're playing? Is this actually the game you want to be playing? Uh, When I first started out, and this is why I side hustled coaching, it was very scary to like try to sell myself as a coach. What do I know? (laughs) And that's the coaching game of like, you know, try to sell packages and this and that. And then there was a shift of... I don't want to just kind of play the game to make money. The money's cool, super cool. But I'm doing this because I want people who have not been in power to be in power in ways they feel good about. That's the game I want to be playing. And so Mm -hmm. I play that game. 
Mm -hmm. I think this is a good moment because I have your chart here (laughs) to like talk about your chart. Cool. Um, And just, you know, for everyone out there, like Magna is ruled by Mercury. And so Mercury is with the sun. It's very good for communications, for being able to express yourself and like your thoughts and be a leader in a lot of ways. And then, of course, you have Jupiter and Mars in your first house. So we have that energy to act, to take action, to make moves, right? And we have the expansion, the wisdom, the spiritual knowledge, the visionary holder, you know, the vision holder there in the first house. So it's, it's really nice to, to see these planets like in a placement where they're really activating you as a, not only as an entrepreneur, but as a leader. Um, And then also you have Saturn and Venus and the moon together in the third and Saturn and Venus is something we just recently were experiencing that in the sky. Um, it's very transformational. So in your chart, this means that you use communication in a transformational way to kind of lead people forward. The moon allows you to do that in a creative way if you want, like, you know, well, I different am trying to get my and- newsletter up. So this is very uh, exciting um, information. Yeah. And that Saturn, it's hard in the third to do things like be online and and get a newsletter out because there's a second guessing that can happen. But through that work of doing all the things that you just said, it gets easier and easier. So I see this a lot with my clients that have Saturn somehow interacting with a third house. There can be like a, almost like a grip in the throat when it comes to like actually putting things out in the world. It takes a long time, you know, what is the third house? It's communications and technology and um, short journeys, Yeah, but it has to do with speaking your truth and and using technology as a tool. Yeah. Which is so interesting because I'm also a projector in human design. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I just have to be out there and let people find me. So it's really interesting to see how the astrology and the human design kind of work together. We've talked about this too. Like I'm a projector. I'm an emotional projector. Are you an emotional projector? I'm a splenic authority. Okay. I also have my spleen filled, but the emotional takes precedence. So you and I have talked a lot about intuition and, you know, just kind of receiving information. And that's what projectors do so well. And if you are out there and you want to know what your human design is, you can go, I think it's like... Just Google it and you'll find a way to type in your birth info and get this data. But it's really interesting to look because projectors are not supposed to work as much. They're supposed to work like four hours a day and cultivate their energy because they're actually like magnetic naturally. And so the more they cultivate their energy, the more they receive. How has that looked for you? I see the validity of that. I am not in a four hour a day work pattern right now. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. (laughs) I am much more in the 14 hour a day work pattern. And I can connect to the toll that that takes. And that's kind of part of my personal work of how can I be the leader I want to be? How can I be successful the way I want to be powerful the way I want to be? And not kind of run these narratives of overwork and busyness and that sort of thing. I resonate with that. Yeah. And and so I'm like, that's a great puzzle to solve. It really is. And I, I mean, I've seen it in my own business that when I do make time for myself, when I do rest, when I do a yoga nidra in the day, you know, after lunch, and when I do stop work at four, when I do take Fridays off, like all these things 
actually, I make more money. I, I feel more rested. I'm more effective in my sessions with my clients. So yeah, I know that to be true. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's really funny because I was journaling the other day and I'm just like, nothing is surprising. There's no positive energy coming from the world. I'm just kind of like, just doing my thing. And so when you're saying that, actually, when a projector rests, they become more magnetic. And so that's the aha I just had with you of, I'm not resting enough. I'm not allowing the magnet to recharge itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one other thing I, I wanted to touch on before we jump into a couple of rapid fire questions is you have your website, it says it's inviting you to become the permission. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I have two websites right now. I'm transitioning from the dash permission, which was my uh, former website where, you know, a lot of people talk about you have the permission, you have the permission to do X, be X, you can be anything in the world. The nuance I want to add is that when you're a first and only, when you're the first person to do something, when you're the first person from your community to do something, the only person like you doing that thing, you become the permission. So it's embracing that and seeing that as a position of power or, you know, well, potential. Well, there's a, I don't know that there's a responsibility, but I, I, I want to strengthen the folks who are doing that because I think in some ways your whole community, you like the people we work with, there's an element of that in our world and it's just in our work and it's that we are the permission to do this, like you having a fantastically successful business, integrating astrology, like gives permission, is the permission for someone else to dream that dream too. You know, like, it's funny, like a couple of years ago, I had a talk with my parents. I'm like, do you think it's weird that I'm a coach, that people pay me money to talk about their life, their business, what they want to do in the world? My parents were like, yeah. Do you know what I do? Like what I talk about in these conversations? They're like, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, but like we had that conversation and now whenever like there's some like business malfeasance and someone has to get an executive coach, my dad will send me the newspaper articles about like uh-huh. coaching in the news. And I'm like, okay, that's the way they connect to it. It's super cool. Yeah. But I am the permission to not be a doctor or lawyer. Right. <laughs> If you want. Right. I love that. So I'm, I'm going to jump into a few rapid fire questions if that's okay. Yeah. So what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Make more mistakes because you need to trust yourself to recover and clean up after them. Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable for you? I did have a morning routine until I went on vacation last week and it has taken <laughs> a moment to reintegrate it. So I have kind of two versions. One version is morning routine of get up, write morning pages, Julia Cameron's morning pages, three handwritten pages, then get up, have coffee, start the day or get up go work out, (laughs) come back, have breakfast, take a walk, and then start the day. So it's either um, kind of writing focused or or physical movement focused. Um, So what are you reading right now? Or what is a book that's really been important to you that you would recommend to the audience? I looked over 
So actually, uh, on my bedside table is uh, Parable of Sower by Octavia Butler. That's what I'm reading right now. Um, Been really kind of in that world. Uh, But on my kind of business kind of book side, I'm reading Profit First. Okay. (laughs) Well, we'll share links to those in the in the show notes. What's your favorite hot beverage? (laughs) Uh, Coffee. Coffee. So, uh, yeah. Coffee, of course. Um, How can people connect with you online and find out more about your work? Yeah. So there are a couple of different ways. One is through LinkedIn. Just connect with me on LinkedIn. But please write a note because uh, I tend not to uh, accept non-personalized invitations from people I don't know. (laughs) Or they can check out powerfluency.co, my new website, um, and sign up for the newsletter which will eventually come out. And then, yeah, those are probably the two best ways to connect with me. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Paula. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode.